This is a reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, please send your Holy Spirit powerfully upon us this morning. Please open our ears and our hearts and give us grace that we might hear your word, Father. Believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's been a very uh, interesting week. Uh, we had a special dinner for our deacons. I love our deacons. We have some hardworking deacons. We have some hardworking deacon candidates. We have some hardworking uh, servants of the church. The elders came to support them. We had a lovely dinner on Wednesday night, some uh, pizza that was brought in. And uh, we had a special guest speaker with us. Uh, his name is Robert Blevins. Uh, Robert was actually here at MetroCrest last year when we did our first ever deacons conference in this presbytery, which MetroCrest hosted. And uh, Robert came uh, accompanying uh, some of the other uh, speakers and guests for the for the, uh, the conference. Since last year, when he was here before, uh, he has since had a series of interesting promotions. Uh, he's now no longer, sorry, not only the uh, director of uh, outreach for Southwood Presbyterian Church in Huntsville, Alabama, but he's also become the PCA's uh, resource person to help with mercy ministries nationwide as well as the PCA's person to help with diaconal ministry nation, nationwide. And we had a really, really good time. Uh, Robert gave us a few introductory comments, and then the rest of the evening we just sort of peppered him with questions. Uh, what about this? What about that? How do you do this? How do you do that? What do you do about this? What do you do about that? It was a very, very helpful evening uh, with, with Robert. And one of the focuses of his evening was talking about how well, it boiled down to this. How does the church live out our call to be salt in the world? Uh, that was last Sunday's sermon. I preached uh, from Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, just one verse. Uh, and it just so happens, as it worked out this Wednesday, we talked about how a church like MetroCrest does that. How do we how do we witness to our community in acts of mercy, in caring for people, in serving people? How do we build relationships with our neighbors? Um, one of the questions that I brought up last Sunday, and which Robert actually brought up, completely no connection to me, but he asked the rhetorical question, what would the community think if our church closed its doors? Would anybody notice? Would anybody care? And Robert actually gave that same question as uh, part of his presentation to our deacons on Wednesday night. So we talked uh, a lot about uh, what it means to be the salty church. Um, I want to remind you just briefly what I said last week about the salty church. If you look at the Bible at verse 13, Jesus says to the disciples, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, he made that statement to them, and through them, he's making that statement to his disciples today. 
like his disciples then, his disciples today, are the salt of the earth. It's not something we are called to be. It is, it is actually what we are in Christ. And if we're not doing that, he says, uh, if we've lost our taste, if we've lost our saltiness, then verse 13 ends with the very sobering words, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Very strong words from Jesus about the importance of being a salty church, the importance of being a church that seeks intentionally to connect to the community where we are in Christ's name uh, to show them his love in concrete ways. And that's the very earthy message, I think, of verse 13. It's a, it's a very earthy message that uh, challenges us, I think, to do concrete things to show the love of Christ. And if we're not doing that, if we're not trying to do that, then we're essentially useless. What if people misunderstand us when we are out there showing concrete love to people? You know, one of the challenges of doing that is you wind up getting your hands really dirty when you're mucking around in the earth. Uh, I'm not much of a gardener, but I, I have worked in my garden, and I know when you work in your garden, you're going to get your hands dirty, and uh, that is a reality when you're involved in earthy ministry, when you're involved with caring for the poor and the marginalized, when you, when you go out to people who don't know Jesus and you're engaging with them and seeking to build a relationship with them. Uh, what do you do if people misunderstand you? That's a good question. It's certainly something I think all of us can understand. Uh, what, what, will, what will the world think we're doing when we go out to serve people in concrete ways? Well, Scott Sauls is a colleague of mine. He's the pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And in a recent sermon, uh, I think Scott said it very, very well. He said this. He asked the question, what if people misunderstand our intent when we're out there being very earthy, engaged with the messy world? What if by being so in the world, people start to think we're soft on truth? If we must choose, says Scott Saul, and sometimes we must, it is better to be misunderstood and labeled as too soft on sin than it is to be misunderstood as self-righteous, harsh, and stern. Wow, that's a loaded sentence. He backs it up this way. He says, Jesus was regularly accused of being a glutton and a drunk, even though he was neither. Why? Because Jesus lived his life around drunks, prostitutes, shady tax collectors, and the like and never felt the need to explain himself. Jesus welcomed sinners and ate with them, mustn't we? It's a very, very good question for any church to ask itself as we contemplate what it means to be the salt of the earth in a very complicated world, in a world so full of confusion and darkness. What do we do if we're misunderstood? Well, I have to say I agree with Scott. If we must choose, and sometimes we have to, we have to do this, <coughs> it's better to be misunderstood as soft on sin than it is to be misunderstood as self-righteous, harsh, and stern. 
that's another conversation which I'm happy to, ha happy to have with anybody who wants to talk about it. But I have to say I agree with Scott, and I think that's a, a part of what Jesus is saying when he tells us to be salt, to be really engaged with the world. Now, he does not stop there. Jesus does not stop there. Because very often we don't have to choose between being perceived as, as uh, too soft on sin or self-righteous, harsh, and stern. Sometimes we have the opportunity to do both. And actually, as Jesus presents it, we are actually intended to do both. Because not only does he say we're supposed to be the salt of the earth in verse 13, but in verse 14, he actually says we're at the same time to be the light of the world. I had a conversation coming into church this morning about whether or not this is saying exactly the same thing or two separate things. And I want to say I, I think it's telling us to do two separate things but deeply connected things. As a matter of fact, as Christ describes it, you can't really do one without the other, but they both require a level of intentionality. Jesus is saying, be the salt that you are supposed to be, and at the same time, be the light that you are supposed to be. And both require intentionality and prayer and purpose and our effort as we're led by the Holy Spirit. So this morning, in contrast to what we learned last Sunday about the salty church, today I'd like for us to think a little bit about being the bright church. The salty church that is at the same time the bright church because that's the way Jesus, in two different paragraphs, describes the church that he's going to go on to teach about sin next week. We're going to shift gears. We're going to talk together about what the Lord says about sin and how we deal with sin. It's very important to him. And he's going to turn in for several sections, several sermons, all the way through Lent. We're going to be thinking about the reality of sin. So he's setting up that by talking about this. So let's think about being the bright church. He says in verse 14, once again, you are the light of the world. If you um, have the... <clears throat> program in, in front of you. You can look at uh, page 8. And as I've been trying to do lately because I'm taking Greek, I put the Greek text here, Humes este to phos to kosmu. Um, that's a very important uh, Greek sentence because it includes the pronoun you. You, humes. In Greek, you don't always include the pronoun. You only include the pronoun if it's significant, if it's really important. So it says, you, humes, you, plural, you are the light of the world. He's, he's making it very plain who he's talking about. He's talking specifically to you, the disciples, those gathered with him on the mount, and you and I gathered here today. You and I are, he says, the light of the world. What is the Lord emphatically telling us that you and I are? What does it mean to be the light of the world? We've talked about what it meant to be the salt of the earth. What does it mean to be the light of the world? Don Carson is a commentator I look to. 
uh, whenever I'm trying to tackle a tricky passage. I looked up what, what Don Carson had to say in his commentary on Matthew, and this is what he says. He says, light is a universal religious symbol. In the Old Testament, as in the New Testament, it most frequently symbolizes purity as opposed to filth, truth or knowledge as opposed to error or ignorance, and divine revelation and presence as opposed to reprobation and abandonment by God. When Jesus says that the church, his disciples, are the light of the world, he's actually saying that we're to be those who bear to the world this truth, knowledge, as opposed to error or ignorance, divine revelation as opposed to divine alienation, and this call to holiness as opposed to the filth of the world. It's all wrapped up in this idea of being the light to the world. It's an image that uh, the Lord Jesus takes directly from the Old Testament. Isaiah talks about the light in the darkness, the light to the nations. Well, Jesus says that the church, you and I, are to be that light. We're to be that, that light that communicates to the dark world the truth that Jesus came to teach us, that Jesus came to show us. Uh, that's... I think, in a nutshell, what it means to be light. It's in contrast to salt. Uh, salt's a very worldly, earthly thing. It has to do with all kinds of things. We talk about preser preservation and, and uh, as sacrifice and judgment, as well as this idea of taste, the richness that the church is called to bring to the community. Here we're told that the church is also to bring light, to be light. I want to highlight two senses in which we are that. Uh, the bright church proclaims truth. Jesus came to proclaim truth. From the very beginning of his ministry, he came to teach the truth. When he called us to repent and, and to put our faith in him and to follow him, he calls us to that truth. And, and he goes on to, to explain what the scriptures have been saying all alone about him. We're going to see starting next week what the truth is about sin, what the truth is about judgment, what the truth is about our relationship with God, what the truth is about how we are called to relate to God. He proclaims truth. He proclaims truth about all sorts of very important, complicated issues. As we make our way through the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see Jesus taking stands on, on all kinds of issues. And you and I as Christians, being the light to the world, you and I will be called to take stands on complicated issues. To do it as the salt of the earth, but to do it, as Jesus says, as a light, not a light that's hidden. We don't hide the light. We don't hide the truth. In fact, he says, uh, people put a light on, a, on a, uh, a stand, not in a basket, because it's on a stand that it's able to give light to the house. As disciples of Christ, we're called to bring light to the house, to bring truth to the house, to bring truth to the world, as Jesus did. You and I are called to do the same thing. You know, I think ours is a day when the church's ministry of bringing truth is extremely important. Difficult, difficult, but extremely important. 
Um, I've been following just the past few weeks a whole series of different situations where the church is called to the costly responsibility of bringing light into darkness. Um, I've got a very dear friend in London, England, who's uh, pastor of a church called St. Helens Bishopsgate. I, I'll mention that church from time to time because it means so much to me. The pastor there, the senior pastor, is a man named William Taylor. And uh, William and his church have been in the situation of having to respond to what the Anglican Church, the Church of England, has been doing on the issue of human sexuality. And just recently, a meeting of the synod in that church got together and they adopted a policy which authorized blessing of same-sex marriages, same-sex unions in the church. And my friend William, who is a Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christian, knows that that is not something a Christian church can do. So what do you do? How do you respond? How do you continue to be the salt of the earth bringing connection and richness to life, while at the same time being a light on the lampstand, bringing light, the light of truth. It is a difficult thing sometimes to do. And I pray for William, and I pray for St. Helens, Bishopsgate, as they seek to do that. It requires great strength and great courage. It requires some discernment. How do we do it? And I've been watching from afar as I pray for him and pray for them, that they would have the ability to be the bright light that Jesus wants them to be and has, has empowered them to be, that they would live that out. Closer to home, I've got friends over at First Methodist Church in Carrollton. Uh, guys, I'm, I am totally committed to the Presbyterian Church in America. I care about every Christian group in our community. If you're a Methodist and you love Jesus, I love you, all right? I've got good friends at the Methodist Church down the street, a man I pray with every week, uh, and I told him I would pray for his church, First Methodist, and I want to tell you, they're going through the same struggle. The Methodist Church is a mess, and I say that as an outside observer. It breaks my heart. I, it doesn't bring me happiness to say that. Uh, I know many godly, Jesus-loving Methodists, and First Methodist Church is trying to be a bright light. They're trying to proclaim the truth, and it's not always easy. So what they had to do was they recently voted, and I think it was an overwhelming vote to actually withdraw from the United Methodist Church. It was a huge decision for them. It was gut-wrenching for them. Many of them had lived their entire lives in the Methodist Church. It's where their grandparents had raised them and where they been baptized in the church they knew and loved with all their heart, and here they were voting to leave it. And it's I've, I've made that decision myself when we left the Episcopal Church. I, I know how gut-wrenching that can be. And so I've been praying for First Methodist. I hope you'll pray for First Methodist Church as they seek to, to be boldly faithful, to be a bright light in darkness. I think that's what Jesus is calling them to do. I think that's what they're called to be. I think that's who they are. But let me tell you, you don't have to go to another part of the world or another denomination. In the Presbyterian Church in America, we are facing it. Uh, we're facing it right now in our day. There are ongoing struggles about this. How do we respond to some of the same issues, some of the same challenges? It seems like right now the whole world is obsessed with 
sexuality and gender and, and all the issues around that. And so there, there, there are huge pressures on the church and the churches to be silent, to not say anything, to, to uh, simply look the other way or, or uh, look inward only and not deal with it in the real world. Uh, we had a big discussion back in 2019, and uh, it had to do with the Nashville Statement. I don't know if you've read the Nashville Statement. I commend the Nashville Statement to you very highly because I think it's an example of the church proclaiming the truth. It begins in Article 1, we affirm that God has designed marriage to be a covenantal, sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman as husband and wife and is meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church. It goes on to say many more things. Uh, it does uh, talk uh, very clearly about what the Bible teaches on sexuality and gender and things like that. Um, but they, they seek to do it with the light, the, the bright light of the scriptures. And the Nashville Statement was endorsed by the PCA, I'm happy to say. It was uh, endorsed, and that became the uh, position of the Presbyterian Church in America, of which we are a part, when they declared the Nashville Statement to be a, quote, biblically faithful declaration, unquote. And the PCA went on record taking a position on this controversial issue. I think all these are examples, uh, examples in real time of the church seeking to be this bright light, the salt of the earth at the exact same time, and the, the, the light of the world. Uh, that's our calling, to be both. And, and both require intentionality. If you look away from caring for the community because you're mad at them because they're sinners, and you pull away, then you're failing. And if you remain silent on the very issues of the day that need most to be discussed because you're afraid to make someone mad at you, then you're failing. So it's not like you do a little of one or the other. It's that you're called, we are called in Christ as his church, as his disciples, to do both at the same time. And that requires a lot of intentionality and effort and a whole lot of prayer, a whole lot of discernment. So the bright church proclaims the truth. But there's actually something maybe even a little more fundamental, and I, I, I want to underscore this in this last section. Because the bright light, the, sorry, the bright church proclaims truth exclamation point, <clears throat> but also the bright church proclaims Christ. So those aren't two separate things, but both require intentionality. We, we teach the whole Bible. We teach the whole Bible in Christ. So the bright church proclaims Christ. Now this, I think, is very important to get straight. If you flip over to John chapter 8, verse 12, different gospel, non-synoptic gospel. If you look at John chapter 8, verse 12, in chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, there's a textually 
uh, uncertain passage about the woman caught in adultery. It's actually one of my favorite passages. Uh, it doesn't show up in all the manuscripts, including the oldest ones. But it does show up in our Bible and in most English translations of the Bible. But uh, immediately following the woman caught in adultery in chapter John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, verse 12 says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them, that is to his disciples, saying, notice what he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Jesus in chapter in John chapter 8, verse 12, says, I am the light of the world. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he says that you and I are the light of the world. I think what he's actually saying is that in Christ, as we are in him, proclaiming the truth in him, because of who he is, that's what we are too. So you see, we're not the light of the world in our own strength. We're not the light of the world all on our lonesome. We're the light of the world because we are in the light of the world. Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. And so we can't fully proclaim truth unless, as the bright church, we also, at the same time, in the same breath, proclaim Christ. Interestingly, if you follow the Greek, uh, in John chapter 8, verse 12, it's got that same emphatic pronoun, ego, amy, to, phos, to, cosmi. I am the light of the world. The emphasis is on the I. And it's uniquely in Christ that you and I are the light of the world. I think there's importance to keep these two things together. Uh, as we proclaim the truth, it's important that we do it from the perspective of Jesus, that we do it as Jesus did it, that we actually look to him as, as not only our motivation, but also our model of how do we proclaim the truth? How do we live out our call to be light? We'll do it as Jesus, the light of the world, does it. In him, that's how we live out, who we are. That will affect everything else. It will take us out of the business of shouting at people and put us in the business of loving people. Now, sometimes you have to shout at people if you love them. Okay, There's a place for that. But it, it means that our, our, our uh, angle, our focus is different. As Christians, we are to be those who love like Jesus loves. And that's how we will be the light of the world. That's how we'll light up the room. That's how we will help people see Jesus in his glory. He will see Jesus, they will see Jesus through you and me. They'll see the truth he proclaimed and they'll see the love that he proclaimed, the love that he demonstrated on the cross. And it's therefore when we do this, when we're the true light, that we're actually enabled to become more and more and more the true salt. So the community sees us as this, this loving presence Speaking truth and doing it in love. Speaking Jesus' name in love. And that's how Jesus sets us up for us to start talking about sin. Jesus did not come to beat people up, to yell at them, to make them feel beaten down and unloved. Pharisees were really good at that. 
Pharisees had a certain way of dealing with adulterous women. Jesus had another way of dealing with adulterous women. Well, my prayer for Metrochrist is that we will seek to be like Jesus, a church that is both salty and bright, that, that loves the sinner and, and reaches out to the broken, reaches out to those who are in need of grace and mercy, to invite them in, to speak the hard word when the hard word has to be spoken, absolutely, but always to do it with the love of Jesus Christ. As we continue through our series on Matthew, I think we'll see again and again and again that this is Jesus' focus. This is what he tells here in this first sermon, Sermon on the Mount, here in this first sermon, he's going to help us to understand what it means to be salt and light and to live that out in real life with messed up people like ourselves. Let's bow our heads and pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance to be together today. Thank you very, very much, Father, for your life-giving word. Oh, Father, we long to be salt and light. And, Father, so often we don't even know how. We want to give glory to you in heaven. We, we want so, to allow people to see through us and through the way we live our lives, the good works that we're moved to do by your Spirit. We want them to give glory to you. Please, gracious God, help us to be salt and light. Grant that we will proclaim the truth. And as we do so, Father, may we proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, your Son. Help us, we pray, Father, for his sake. Amen.